the whole point of the symbolism of the man at the front waiting for the wife to come in and walk up the aisle and she's wearing pure and spotless and dressed in white because it's meant to symbolize that the church has been made pure by what Jesus has done for her and the fact that he's won her and then they make these promises and then they give the symbol of the promises to each other which God does with us and giving us his spirit and we get baptized and it's all the whole process of a marriage is intended to put on display the covenant love that God has for his people and that we have for him. And so when you mess around with marriage, you change marriage, you're actually doing something much more than simply changing a social tool or a social setup that humans like. You're actually monkeying around with the thing that God said, this is going to mark out the relationship between Christ and the church. And that's why Christians care about it. And it's sometimes called a creation ordinance which means it was there at the very beginning before there was such a thing as a city or a civilization. It was there before the United Kingdom, and it was certainly there before David Cameron and Barack Obama and Stephen Fry and anybody else who might now have views about what marriage is. Marriage has been around for many, many thousands of years before those people came along. And God loves it, and the enemy hates it, actually, because it symbolizes the gospel. Because every time people get married, even if they're not Christians, if they have a Christian... I've, you see that, don't you? You go, and my cousins do it. They, none of them, are, almost none of them are believers. But as they get married in a church to symbolize their love, they are unwittingly putting on display the Christian gospel. They are using language, I will love you forever, till death do us part, forsaking all others. They are saying things and doing things that demonstrate the love that Jesus has for his people. And God thinks that's wonderful, and the enemy hates it. And so marriage, in that sense, stands for something much bigger than simply, oh, I love her and she loves me. It's much more significant than that. So when marriage is is challenged or is subverted or changed in its meaning in a society, it matters for us as Christians. And it actually matters for people who aren't Christians as well, um, but it might not be so obvious why. So let's read Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 1 through 8. They'll appear up here. And this is just, there's just one line in this which I imagine will stick out on this subject, but it's good to read it in its context as well. Hebrews 13, 1 to 8. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I won't fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, so that's almost like a little eight-verse summary of Christian ethics at the end of a letter, uh, which we looked at in some detail in the beginning of this year, so I won't go further into that now for the letter to the Hebrews. But it's just that one line that leapt out at me, really, for thinking about how, whether we're single or married or bereaved or widowed or whatever it might be, whether we're gay or straight, whether we're young or old, we should actually, as Christians, hold on to that, that statement about how to regard marriage. And the statement is, let marriage be held in honor among all. That's something you can do whether you're married or not. And something we're called to do whether we're married or not. 
And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And I want to apply that instruction. And we all right going back a couple of pages to okay, so, um, that's it. So the bottom of verse, so verse four, bottom of that page. I want to imply that instruction into our current cultural context in the UK, because it's a big issue, and it's become a huge issue in the last ten years. So when I was at, when I was at school, I'm 36 now. So when I was at school, just I left school 18 years ago. So I'm halfway through my life so far, it would never have occurred to anybody at all to suggest that marriage is anything other than between a man and a woman. And in the last 18 years, it's gone from being, it wouldn't have occurred to you to say that, to being, it almost gets you ruled out of polite society to say that it's not true. So in, in half of my life, and I don't think I'm that old, it has gone from being something which every civilization everywhere broadly agreed on, through to something that now quite a lot of civilizations, particularly in the West, have completely changed their mind on what it means. Even Barack Obama, who obviously brought in the law in America a couple of years back, when he ran for president just in 2008. Do you remember 2008? He said, no, marriage is between a man and a woman. And now you would be pilloried in America for saying that kind of thing in public life. In the seven years, it's gone from, I, w I ran for a president as, as the president of the leader of a leftish party, and now I, it's completely unacceptable. So there's been a massive change in what you are and are not allowed to think in the course of the last few years. And that reflects, I suppose, four different ways in which you and I could respond to the institution of marriage. There's four different things I think people are doing with what marriage is in our culture. Um, and I think three of them are bad, but one of them is really, really good. And there's four different ways you could approach what marriage is in our generation. We could change it. We could apologize for it. We can idolize it. Or we can honor it. Right? And I think the last one's the right one and the other three are bad. But actually, as Christians, I don't think there's anything to be afraid of here. I just think it's something to be able to think through what is a what is a Christian approach to marriage? What does it mean to let marriage be held in honor among all? What does that look like? But I think there are, four, as I say, four ways. Changing it, apologizing for it, idolizing it, honoring it. And three of them are kind of popular. And Christians need to cling to the fourth one. So the first thing you can do, and the most high-profile one at the moment, is to try and change marriage. You change the meaning of the word, okay? So if you just put up the um, first image, Tiago, right? So this is, these are a couple of... Well, marriage is about love, not gender. You know, that would be a standard sort of way of approaching it. Don't like gay marriage, says Homer Simpson. Don't have one. Problem solved, right? It's just simple, eh? So we, we, what we do is we, we now we, we put the word gay in front of it and we say, you don't now have to worry about what this, what this institution means outside of your own. If you don't like it, you just don't worry about it. You know, don't have one. But we are changing the meaning of the word so that now it doesn't anymore involve it being a man and a woman. So we, we can do that. It doesn't affect you. Your view doesn't affect us. Let's just live and let live alongside it. So if you argue for gay marriage, you see, you're not actually changing the rights of gay people as much as you are changing the meaning of the word marriage. Because uh, if you already know that the word marriage has nothing to do with gender, then you're fine. But if the word marriage has something to do with opposites becoming one, then obviously it cannot be just randomly applied to anybody else. In the same way that if I was to say that now all four-sided shapes can be considered triangles, I wouldn't be extending and being inclusive about four-sided shapes. I would actually be changing the meaning of the word triangle, right? If I was to say, look, there's now such thing as a four-sided triangle, you'd say, well, you haven't really just been inclusive about four-sided shapes. You've just said now the word triangle doesn't mean what it used to mean, which is okay I mean, if that's what you want to do, but you've got to acknowledge that you're changing it, not just extending it to more people or more shapes. I think equality in that sense, you see, we want equality, which is often words you'd find in, in this sort of 
this sort of discourse, equality is a bit of a red herring because people say, we want marriage equality. We want to be able to be equal in marriage. We want anybody to be able to get married if they love somebody. But actually, no one really believes that because nobody thinks I should be able to marry my daughter or marry my sister or marry three people at the same time or marry a man and a woman or marry an animal or marry any number of other creatures. It isn't actually, I mean, some, in fact, there are a tiny number of people at the fringes who are saying some of those things. But in reality, nobody believes that marriage should be equal. Everybody believes that marriage should include some relationships and exclude others. All that's happened in the last 10 or 15 years is a new category has entered the debate in order to be able to say, maybe that now should also be involved. But actually, it's not really about equality. It's not really about everybody can marry anybody they like. No, you can't. There's still rightly strict rules about who can and can't get married. Um, and, but, the, but the basic argument that I've, I, I think is just well put in uh, an article I read this last month in The Economist, which is one of the magazines I read, and they, they just they sort of made this statement which I thought was very helpful as a summary of the way the debate's gone. They said, they, they're talking about it in America, but it's true here as well. They said, the Constitution says that no states may deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Limiting marriage to heterosexuals plainly denies such equality to gay people. So the court should strike down all remaining bans on same-sex marriage. The legal case is clear, the moral one is compelling. That's the, that's the argument in a nutshell. It's obvious that it is exclusionary to limit this institution just to heterosexual people. So it's clear, the legal case is clear. Now, of course, it is clear if you already know that marriage is only about affection and sex, and it's not about two different people becoming one, or having children, or representing the gospel of Christ in the church. If you know it's not about those things, then it's obvious, of course it should be open to anybody who loves each other. Because we've defined marriage already as a thing that doesn't mean anything beyond itself. It's simply a vehicle for social cohesion and expressing affection and romantic love. So many people, I think I've rightly said, actually the key turn in the gay marriage debate happened in the 50s and 60s when no-fault divorce laws came in because they began thinking about marriage mainly as a romantic attachment. And that that's really all it was. And yeah, of course, most people did still have kids. You carry on functioning as you used to for a while until somebody says, but hang on, if marriage is basically just a love thing, then any two people who love each other, so long as they're not related, surely they can get married. But actually, for the Christian, that's not what marriage is at all. Marriage does involve affection and love, but marriage involves affection and love as an expression of something higher and deeper and beyond itself. And it's there for two different people becoming one, and it's there for the procreation and procreation of children, and it's there to represent the gospel. And Christians have believed that since ever, and actually, so has everybody else until 15 years ago. Well, they, might, they might have left out a bit about the gospel of Christ, but they would have seen it as extremely obvious. And, of course, many people in the world still do. So the economist's case was just like, this obvious. Look, this institution, should, it's obviously exclusionary to say it only applies here, which is like saying it's obviously exclusionary to say that only three-sided shapes can be called triangles. I think, well, it's only exclusionary if you don't think that the word triangle necessarily means that. But if you do, it's not exclusive at all. It's just using the word sensibly or properly. The Economist continued with another interesting line. They said, and, there's another reason why we think gay marriage should just roll out everywhere, and there are no victims. Anti-abortion campaigners can wave placards showing bloody fetuses, but campaigners against gay marriage will struggle to find anyone who has been harmed by it. 
which is an interesting argument. Like, there's no problem here. It doesn't hurt anybody. Fascinatingly, four weeks later, the same magazine, The Economist, this is just two weeks ago, ran a huge feature on manhood. It was their cover story, on manhood, on why men are struggling in a lot of industrialized nations as a, you know, and what, what some of the problems are. And they argued, boys, we everybody knows boys are harmed by growing up without a father. And that was, a, that was one of the points they were making, just saying, this is actually one of the things that leads to men, young men suffering. And I thought it was fascinating that they wrote an article saying, gay marriage harms nobody, and then four weeks later said, boys growing up without a father are harmed by having that experience, even though presumably 50% of gay marriages are two women, and therefore if they have children, there's no father. And I just thought it was so, it's so ingrained in society's way of thinking that even the intelligent people who write The Economist Leader don't realize that they've totally contradicted themselves in the space of four weeks. So it is, it's obviously... The pressure to change it comes from many sides, and a lot of those arguments are arguments you'll hear and I'm sure have colleagues and friends and family members, and it may be a, an issue you're wrestling with personally as well. And I don't come here to mock any of those views, just simply to make, say that that's the way the case works, and why as a Christian, with an assumption about what marriage is, that's never going to be persuasive. And the, the reason simply is that for a Christian, marriage is not just about love and affection, it is a picture of otherness and fidelity and surrender and Christ and the church. And I'll talk a bit more about that towards the end. So that's one, th one way to cope with it, though. We change it. Okay? Second way to cope with it, which might be more challenging for some Christians, is to apologize for it. Right? So you say, well, we're not, okay, I don't, I don't want to change it because I know that this is you know, really essential to the Christian tradition and way of life. But, but what I might do is I actually might apologize for it. So here's an, another couple of images that you might... This is a bit more the way of... I'm trying to get... The, the images will try and get you to feel bad for believing what you believe. And there's plenty of those, right? Our marriage was at once illegal too, beyond the right side of history, right? Black people and white people used not to be able to get married in some parts of some civilizations, although actually nothing like as commonly as, as of course, true of, of um, men and women getting married. Uh, or on the right-hand side, imagine how stupid you're going to look in 40 years. Basically, you guys are racists, aren't you? If you say marriage is between a man and a woman, you're the same as a racist. You're, you're doing exactly what they did. You're taking a social institution and you're excluding certain kinds of couples from it. There's a whole bunch of things that could be said about that, not least the fact that every civilization has known marriages between man and woman, and very, very few civilizations have objected to mixed-race marriage in that way. There's many other things we could say, but the idea is, is what he's trying to do is trying to get, get you or anybody like you to apologize for your view of marriage. Saying, all right, you don't have to change it, but at least you should feel bad about these bigoted, insulting, homophobic, and probably racist views that you have, which, as I say, Barack Obama had in 2008. And so did almost everybody who's making these posters and things about 20 years ago. You'll feel terrible about them in a few years, so you should apologize for them. You should feel bad. You should just shut up. You know, don't say anything, church, or anybody, to be honest. And the pressure is for the church to capitulate. The pressure is for the church to say, yeah, you're right, actually. You're, goodness, we, we are very narrow and bigoted, aren't we? Yes, talking about as if marriage is somehow a reflection of Christ and the church and therefore involves two other kinds of people from each other. Talking as if natural childbearing has got anything to do with anything. You're right, that was very exclusive and narrow. But I'll just keep it to myself. I still believe it, but I won't tell anybody. That's the pressure. Well, we're not going to do that here. Um, I love the way Rick Warren handled this. And you, some of you know Rick, Pastor Rick Warren wrote The, the Purpose Driven Life and many other books. And he was on Piers Morgan's show. Piers Morgan, who used to edit the Daily Mirror, is now a huge chat show guy in America. And, uh, and he had Rick Warren on, and the two of them get on very well. And Rick Warren said to him, I just thought it was such a good example, said, you've just obviously, like you ask all Christians on television, what about gay marriage? And Rick Warren's answer, I thought, was so wise. He just said, look, Piers, 
you and I make decisions about what is true and right and good in completely different ways. So of course we're going to differ on this. For you, the final authority is not the revealed will of God. That's just not how you make decisions about anything. So of course we differ. That's fine. Your view, you will look at society through a secular lens and you'll think what's from, from where you stand now, what do you think is going to make most people happy? Well, that's okay. If that's how you make decisions based on the secular assumptions you hold, that's how you got there. But that's not how I make decisions. That's not how Christians think about the world. We just don't start there. I'm not saying you should because you're not a Christian. Why would you? But I'm saying that's not how I do things. I'm, I'm elaborating on his comment. I thought it was so insightful. You and I, We just make decisions differently. That's what's going on here. It's not really a debate about who should be able to get married, ultimately. It's about who's in charge of the world. It's about do, we, do you do things, is, does God have a right to dictate the way the world works? And from us as a Christian, yes, it does. But of course, for you, it wouldn't. I just, I thought this, I was thinking about that anyway. I was going to make that comment. And then I read this in The Spectator uh, a few days ago. Make it sound like I read, spend the entire time reading magazines, which I don't. But I, this was a great article. So Matthew Paris, some of you will know, is a Times columnist and a spectator. And it used to be a, he's a gay atheist, which makes him interesting on this discussion. And the reason I love Matthew Paris is because as a gay atheist, he frequently is one of the best people at calling out the church for being woolly, fluffy, and lily-livered on this whole discussion. And here's what he wrote. He was, he was using the story of um, Moses coming down the mountain and finding idol worship taking place and going really angry and breaking the tablets and making the Israelites drink it. And he riffed off that story and wrote that this is just bombastic, brilliant stuff. Let me have a crack at the revised version of the story right away. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the Irish referendum's huge majority for gay marriage and the dancing, and Moses' alarm was palpable, and he took a copy of the pink paper, and flourishing it said, we have to stop and have a reality check, not move into denial of realities. We need to find new language to connect with a whole generation of young people, the prophet concluded. Then casting off his garments, Moses said, hey, lead me to the coolest gay bar in the camp. So, wearily and with a reluctance born of not even supporting the conclusion, let me, that's Matthew Paris, let me restate the Conservative Catholic's only proper response to the news from Dublin last weekend. It is that 62% in a referendum doesn't cause a sin in the eyes of God to cease to be a sin. Can't these Christians see that the moral basis of their faith cannot be sought in the arithmetic of pollsters? What has that Irish referendum shown us? It is that a majority of people in the Republic of Ireland in 2015 don't agree with their church's centuries-old doctrine that sexual relationships between two people of the same sex are a sin. Fine, we cannot doubt that finding. But can a preponderance of public opinion reverse the polarity between virtue and vice? Would it have occurred for a moment to Moses, let alone God, that he'd better defer to Molech worship because that's what most of the Israelites wanted to do? It must surely be implicit in the claim of any of the world's great religions that on questions of morality, a majority may be wrong. But this should be vividly evident to Christians in particular. They need only consider the fate of their Messiah and the persecution of adherents of the early church. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, says Paul. What does the Archbishop of Dublin now have to say to the 743,000 people who voted to uphold what their priests taught them was God's will? These, and not the gays, are now the reviled ones. Popular revulsion cannot make them wrong. Which I think is really insightful. And again, as I say, the fact that he's gay and an atheist helps because he's just saying, I don't even agree with you guys, but you've got to realize that if what you're saying is grounded in revealed will of God, you can't change it just because you, a few people nowadays disagree with you. That's just not how the way any, if you genuinely believe that things are revealed from God, what are you thinking in trying to change it because it's unpopular? 
Jesus was killed. Of course you're going to be unpopular sometimes. Lump it. And I think that's a good challenge to have. So marriage isn't something to apologize for. It's at the heart of the Christian vision of creation and human flourishing and the gospel. And if people hate that, and they do, and if people even think that you or I are disgusting for thinking it, which they do, some of them, then so be it. That's part of the, that's part of the cost of following Christ in our day. And it will probably become more acute in my lifetime than yours. So that's the second one. You can change it or apologize for it. I don't think we should do either of those things. The third way of responding to it, which has been much more common in the church in general, has been the opposite. It's actually been to idolize it. It's been to make marriage, really, an idol. And here's what I mean. Those of us who are married can live as if marriage is the be-all and end-all of Christian community. And what we can do is form homes and families that are effectively insular and closed to anybody who isn't from our immediate family. And our social circles and our minds can be shut off to everybody outside. Which in turn says to our single brothers and sisters, of whom there are many in this room and in the church as a whole, including some who know they will never get married, you, if you're not married, you're not really in the club. Right? We do things, this, we have our homes and our closed units, and you're either ha- you either have one or you sort of drift outside. And that can also make single people idolize marriage, because single people then will think, yeah, but if for me to fully flourish as a Christian, I need to be married too. And what that does is it risks making an idol out of marriage. And that's probably, if we're honest, the danger that more of us in the church have, certainly in a church like ours, than changing it or hopefully even apologizing for it. Here's what Jesus would say to that. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Jesus' challenge is, you cannot make your earthly family the highest good in this life. You have to be prepared to lay that aside. He doesn't mean literally hate your wife. I I think lots of other things he said would show that he's he's speaking exaggeratingly here. But what he's doing is saying, this has got to be way, way down your priority in this compared to following Jesus. So I was thinking about this recently and just imagining that we as a church were all trying to climb a mountain. And that everybody here got up and went up with the kids and everything, uh, went off, and we just went to climb a huge mountain. Let's say it wasn't the mountains that we have down here, nice rolling green hills, but like a proper mountain, which is hard work to get up, and you have to stop and camp and take provisions and all that, rucksacks everywhere. And imagining that the, whatever it is, the hundred odd of us, were to go walking up a mountain together, continuing to function in the family units that we now have. Right, so there's some couples with kids and some couples without kids and some singles and some people who've lost a partner and so on. And we all go up this mountain together, and the goal of the trip is simply to get to the top of the mountain. That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to achieve. As a community together, our goal is to get up there. Now, as part of that trip, some of we are formed in social units that might help us take the children with us, which is what marriages are. Right? So as a, it might be that my, it was right for me, for instance, to carry all the gear, for not just for me, but for me, my wife, and my two children. That's, and that would, be, that would be a good way of expressing family. And so continue on up. And then it might be that when we sit down and have a meal, that I sit down with my family and we make sure that the other kids are given, that my kids are fed, just as other people are. But what we wouldn't then do as we're going up the mountain together as a community, we wouldn't prioritize that little bit of time of family meal time as if everybody else now was excluded. We'd probably say, okay, well, there's, other, there's single people here who, who don't have the kids with them, so either they're going to eat together, or, hey, do you want to come over and join us, and we'll sit together? And what you certainly wouldn't do is, if you're moving on up the mountain, begin for the children and the family to become the preoccupation. So the single people are going on up the mountain, and you guys are just sort of, as families, sticking around and hanging out with your children and playing with them, and kind of losing sight of the fact that there was a goal. 
And that's what can happen in the church. If, you don't, if you're married and you don't believe me, talk to a single person about it. They'll probably tell you the same thing, that it can sometimes feel as if the means of getting the family up the mountain has become the end. It's become almost the, the thing to do, really, is to spend time in these little circles of people sitting on the mountainside eating together, rather than remembering that our goal is to get up there, is to reach the destination Christ has called us for, and that marriage is a useful tool in doing that, but it certainly should not be an exclusive means of separating out people who are in the club and people who are out. We're all headed to the summit together. We need each other. And in our family, we've had single people live with us for the last three years, helping us with our children, which has been enormously helpful. So I'm quite a big fan of that model anyway. But there is a risk that we do that, that actually the focus becomes the family unit rather than the destination. So there is a risk of idolizing marriage as well. That's all, if you like, the bad news. That's all the things that I don't think you should do. We could change it. We could apologize for it. We could idolize it. I don't think we should do any of those things. I think we should do what Hebrews 13.4 says and honor it. We are going to honor marriage. Marriage should be held in honor by all. That means we celebrate it, we esteem it, we treasure it. We don't idolize it, we don't make it God, but we say this is God-given and it's a gift and it's a good, and it's a good whether or not I am currently married. It's a good if I hope to be married one day. It's a good if I was married and I'm not now. It's a good even if I have experienced great pain and suffering through my marriage. It's a good even if I'm currently having a difficult marriage because some of those situations, are no, none of those are brought about by the institution. They're brought about by the fact that I and other people are fallen and sometimes it goes wrong. But I, nonetheless, I'm going to say this beautiful picture of Christ in the church is a gift of God and I want to honor and esteem it. And as married couples, we do that by staying tight to our wedding vows by staying humble, by working hard at marriage, by putting on display the sacrificial love that Christ has for the church, by apologizing quickly, by being prepared to admit that we may well be at fault as well, and by just working at it. That's how married people honor marriage. Single people honor marriage as well, because what single people do in honoring marriage, maybe never married, maybe divorced, maybe widowed, is you honor marriage in the way that you recognize its exclusivity. So I have a, one of my, a really close, one of my closest friends is a, as struggles with same-sex attractions. He's attracted to men rather than women. And he, I think he esteems and honors marriage more in his faithful and celibate singleness than a great many married people do. He's got a very high view of marriage. He said, that's not for me. And the reason it's not for me is because I'm not attracted to women like that. But I, am, I nonetheless see it as a picture of Jesus in the church. I see its power, and I am going to esteem and honor it by not going in for it and allowing that to remain something that points to a higher reality than itself. And as the church together, we honor marriage by speaking highly of it, by not apologizing for it, by recognizing its public nature. So please don't swallow the modern myth that marriage is a private thing. It doesn't affect anybody else. You know, if you don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married. Nonsense. Because marriage is a public thing. It's a public statement. That's why in our marriages as a church, we say, will you, the community, uphold them in their vows? And everybody goes, we will. And there's a reason why we do that, because we're saying this isn't just the two of them going off into Noah's Ark. This is about us as a community flourishing. Children will be probably nurtured and loved in this context. It matters for us all. And we encourage marriage, and we honor and esteem it. And I want to close with a, a seven-minute video which does an outstanding job, I think, of honoring marriage. It's actually produced, believe it or not, by the Vatican. But I just think it's got a lot of Protestants, Orthodox, Catholics involved in it. And I think it is such a helpful little 
putting on display of what Christian marriage is, that I wanted to show it at some length and allow you to see it, uh, and then we'll close um, just in, in prayer at the end. But I just think this is a very helpful way of honoring marriage in a generation that mostly doesn't. Thanks, Tiago. Thank you.